Welcome to another Professional Practice Podcast with Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at Kingston School of Art in London. In these podcasts we are chatting to senior figures in architecture and associated professions to take a look at the professional standards and to understand some of the issues relating to building and running of architectural practices. So today we're delighted to be here at the RIBA to talk to David Gloucester, Director of Education at the Royal Institute of British Architects. So thanks very much, David, for your time. The starting point is over to you. Do you want to just tell us about yes, yourself sure. and what the Education Department does? Okay, uh, I'm David Nostra, I'm a Chartered Architect. I've been on the register for 40 years now, so that will give you some idea of my enormous antiquity. Uh, I've been at the RIBA for nearly 12 years, um, coming up in about a fortnight's time. Uh, the Education Department at the RIBA basically has quite a, a, a narrow remit, but a large number of uh, responsibilities and activities. Uh, essentially, we're only dealing with the period between somebody coming into a school of architecture at whatever age and the point at which they become registered as an architect after hopefully successfully undertaking their part three professional practice examination. So theoretically we're only really dealing with a student stroke graduate for between seven to ten years depending on their mode of study and how long it takes them to achieve registration and that's a whole kind of controversial area in itself uh, which we may come on to. Um, the education department deals with uh, professional education so obviously the, the provision of the professional practice exam uh, across about 40 to 50 percent of the British schools which provide part three. Uh, we have uh, our own distance learning program, RIBA Studio, forming an as the office-based exam, uh, which we run with our franchise partner, Oxford Brooks University. We have an extensive awards program, which includes things like the Charles Jenks Award, uh, the uh, McCasman Bursary, the Foster Travelling Scholarship, President's Medals of Part 1 2, and the dissertation. Uh, we also run the Research Awards Medal um, and the, the Adjunct Awards connected with that. Uh, we are a publisher in that we produce the RIBA Education Yearbook on a nearly annual basis. Um, we validate around 50 schools in the UK and around 50 internationally uh, between Latin America and the Far East and pretty, pretty much all points in between uh, and a whole pile of other things which um, I could go into but why not. So it, it's pretty varied, we're extremely productive, it's project based, we only deal with things which are practical, which you can hold in your hand, which you can measure and which are useful. Um, none of the work is speculative per se. Uh, we also, I think, have a role in brokering connections between schools. We completed the PolyArt project um, in July, the second week of July, the fifth iteration of PolyArt, um, which has involved so far 30 schools nationally and internationally, working together on shared themes uh, and swapping briefs and sites and dialogue um, in honour and recognition of the thinking of Cedric Price. So, Huge range of activities, very, very diverse. Indeed. Pause for breath. So I'm just interested in terms of you, per se, right? Mm -hmm. So we've got all the surroundings, the, the glamour and the gloss of the RVA. What about you? How did you get into this? You've been here for a while. I've been what, here about for a while. what about beforehand? How did you um, get into architecture? Let alone, let alone the RVA. Yeah, I was one of those kids who was always drawing in the flyleaf books. Um, so I drew eventually. Um, I 
was also, uh, I wouldn't say argumentative, I was interested in debate. Uh, so I kind of flirted with the idea of criminal law. Um, and <laughs> you're going to say criminal behaviour then, not okay. criminal, criminal behaviour. Yeah, yep. you know, many architects indulge in the marginal <laughs> criminal behaviour, but we won't go into that. Into that. Uh, and I, I think I got interested in the idea of the kind of activity which combined advocacy and creativity. So I found myself floating along the shelf from archaeology when I realised actually there was very little that I was probably going to dig up as an archaeologist. Um, through advocacy and law to architecture uh, and I did two years of Birmingham School of Architecture uh, I then transferred, lost my local authority grant and went to the AA where I did parts one, two and three subsequently taught there for five years um, and had a lifelong uh, connection with the institution um, What brought you here? What brought me here? Um, careers in practice, I was in practice for 25 years you know, large housing practices like Levitt Bernstein and Pollard Thomas and Edwards. Uh, I was also involved with the first publicly listed on the stock exchange yeah, practice, D.Y. Cool. Davis, um, in practice on my own account for 10 years. Uh, multitude of, I've done practically everything apart from healthcare in terms of um, completed architectural projects. I taught uh, in North Vietnam. Uh, for three years as a British Council funded scholar. Talked for three years in Holland, in Arnhem, um, on a sort of exchange basis. 15 years nearly at London South Bank University. So I've taught at both ends of the spectrum. You know, the the, the um, uh, advantaged end, if you like, yeah. and the less advantaged end. Um, and I think after having felt like I'd done a lot in practice and a lot in academia. I always was interested in architectural education and the questions it raised. So when the vacancy came up here, I went for it and I got it. And in terms then of your uh, your likes, dislikes in architecture, maybe you're going to be diplomatic here and you have a particular interest? Uh, I th my, my particular interest in architecture are at the interstices between architectural design and structural engineering design. Um, I guess, I, I know you can't talk about heroes in a postmodern world because everybody is of equal value, even bottom dash. Well, I don't really subscribe to that view, so the people that I'm interested in, I'm a fan unashamedly of the Khan of post-war Corbusier, although I was a late season convert. Um, structural engineering, Robert Meyer, Heinz Isler, Christian Men, um, Owen Williams. Um, I think that architecture has to have a strong theoretical uh, foundation, it has to have an exceptionally strong technological foundation. I think technology is not taught as having a theoretical dimension. I think all these things are incredibly important. I think architecture is very difficult. And I think to trivialise it into something small and containable is wrong. I think the students need to understand that they're getting into something deep and dense. It's interesting. I mean, again, I, I know that you're here in an official capacity and therefore there are maybe restrictions on what you may want to or allowed to say. Kind of the way you're describing that, are you suggesting that maybe that theoretical approach to architecture understanding construction and all the rest of it used to happen and it happens less so today are you bemoaning I, I, I think there's been a move which is anti-theory it's arguable that you know the the fixations with decon um, tended to 
killed the appetite for something that seemed difficult. My personal view is that if you're dealing with use, if you're dealing with the phenomenological, if you're dealing with the theoretical, if you're dealing with the community, you're dealing with society, and making all this stuff and spending other people's money on it, um, you're, it's axiomatic that you're dealing with a really, really difficult subject. And unless the, it tells a story that's got value and longevity, I think you're tending to diminish how complex architecture is. It never, it never occurred to me when I was 18 why Frank Lloyd Wright worked until his dying day at the age of 93. Well, of course, in his terms, he was trying to, no pun intended, get it right, and probably was extraordinarily critical of much of his work, or even though it forms, you know, a canon, you know, sort of pre-modernist canon. Um, so, yeah, I'm critical of any debate which makes architecture seem too facile. I'm critical of any debate which makes architecture seem too banal. I don't tend to favour the notion of background architecture. I think architecture needs to make statements. They can be very quiet statements, but it needs to stand up and be counted. Follow on from my proviso earlier on, you are speaking here in a personal capacity, and also what's, what's yep. important to say as well is that the RIBA and yourself, for example, are not here to then impose your vision or the RIBA's vision on schools of architecture. So there are places that do theory, there are places that yep. maybe don't, and you could, and, and they, they could both get validated. They totally could, and, and I think it's important to delineate you know, my, my personal interests and beliefs about what constitutes uh, authentic architecture and the idea that um, the offer in architectural education should be incredibly broad to reflect the incredibly broad nature of the profession and the people who go into it. Yeah. So I don't expect everybody to be able to give you um, 30 minutes unassisted on Wittgenstein. And if people want to form um, fixation with services engineering, yeah. uh, resource efficiency, community architecture, the material in architecture, colour in architecture, it, this is fine. It's yeah, all grist yeah. to the mill. We know that there's this kind of trend, I would say no, no more than that, of maybe students, maybe this has always been the case, of students who uh, design their studio projects on the basis of what they believe might please their tutors' interests. Do you find architecture schools thinking that maybe they ought to follow? No, I think I, I think the nature of tutors in schools is too individual and, and dare I say, it, bloody minded and, and um, uncollective um, in its approach to ever see schools as homogeneous in their output. I mean, I think it's convenient to characterise schools as being this, that or the other, but I think the reality is that the shades of opinion and output within any one school is actually more diverse than meets the eye. It may be that certain kinds of work gets published in favour of other kinds of work, but I think there's actually a, a kind of intriguing diversity. Yeah, personally I find some schools more entertaining than others, but that doesn't mean that they can't be validated and aren't incredibly useful to feeding the future profession. Since you've mentioned some details about the number of schools you validate and, and all the rest of it, do you have, off the top of your head, figures about a number of students in the UK now? And yeah, we've got, a, we've got roughly 14,500 students of architecture in the UK. About 9,000... That's, that's what, studying across the, across that's the studying three? Studying across part, 
parts one and two, oh, okay. so about 9,000 on part one, around 5,500 right. on part two, and we tend to uh, graduate between 1,000 and 1,300 people out of part three on an annual basis, oh, really? and that's been pretty much steady state for the last five, six, seven years. Um, since the kind of ramping up of numbers in the early 90s, we've been looking at figures certainly over the last decade, which those statistics would typify that kind of profile. And do you follow then through, you know, every university is, has these kind of employability criteria now mm. and the speed of employability. Do you monitor that? Or we don't. Follow that um, the RICS, for example, one of their validation or accreditation criteria in their case is that I think every graduate has to be employed within three months, otherwise yeah. the school gets a kicking. Yeah. Um, we don't see that as being realistic given the cyclic nature of architecture nationally and globally. So, uh, employability and capability, yes, very important. But do we do a kind of tick box thing? Yes, they're all a bog and bash within the first six weeks after graduation. I, we don't think that would be um, realistic to undertake. In terms of the globalisation now of education, yep. but also the travelability, whatever the word might be, you know, the, the flexibility of moving across the world, is that something which is the RIVA take heed of that? I, uh, we're extremely sensitive to the fact that architects work in a globalised economy. You know, the butterfly flapping swings on one side of the earth and causing an earthquake on the other. The architectural economy pretty much works like that. The, the issues are that we need to facilitate that. Now, from the architect, from the RIDA's point of view, we believe that there should be uh, arrangements between all statutory bodies recognising equivalents to facilitate mobility. Not just the EU, whether we're in it or out of it, but actually the great, with a small g, English-speaking blocks, you know, Australia, New Zealand, um, Canada, North America, um, India, I would suggest possibly as well. Um, the idea that architects could at least transfer within those blocks, as well as any other blocks that we are or aren't a part of, I think would be incredibly useful. And certainly that's very much on our radar to negotiate these things, which paradoxically may be facilitated by Brexit. Yeah. So more um, of a WTO arrangement. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the, the difficulty, of course, is that it's not down to us because we're a membership body, so we have to get. NCARB in the States, who are extremely up for it, by the way, uh, the National Council of Architectural Registration Boards. It's the state-by-state -state system that recognises the registration of architects in the individual states. Um, so it's the ARB equivalent, but on a state-by-state -state basis. Federal um, so we, we, we are very interested in developing those kind of um, unilateral agreements to facilitate mobility. We think that's incredibly important. Because architects will have to travel where the work goes. The emphasis in, and sense of gravity in the global economy shift. Um, when I was 18, I was, uh, I was taught in all sincerity that the major global problem would be the fact that China would be starving to death by the year 2000. That didn't quite come to pass. So we need to be vigilant and make sure that architects are able to be mobile and to have their qualifications recognised and their expertise recognised everywhere. Right, and, and presumably that's, uh, since, since we mentioned Brexit and the kind yeah. of the, the kerfuffle that, that surrounds that, those kind of, well, let's call them trade deals, it's a, it's a bad yeah, expression. Free trade but, uh, agreements, yeah, trade agreements. Nothing's ever easy, but is that difficult? Is it possible? Um, is it? We think it's 
certainly achievable. I mean, the Australians have done a deal with um, Canada and North America, yeah. and it took less than a year to realise. Yeah. So that suggests the fact that where the will is there, um, the means to implement it can come into being. It's dependent on the uh, willingness of um, statutory bodies, not necessarily a million miles from this building. Moving on in terms of, the, we're talking about a changing world, yep. um, and the RIBA is uh, recommending broader changes, you know, the changes have immediately happened, but are due to happen, and you, say, not you, the RIBA says by September 2019, the RIBA strongly encourages, in commas, strongly encourages all recognised UK schools of architecture to have completed detailed proposals offering an integrated academic framework. So yep. I'm just asking whether time scale is the same and whether what does that really mean? The time scale is the same. Uh, Equally, we're not doctrinaire about that because we understand how long it takes to do things in the universities. We also understand as a membership body we can't insist. Uh, what we're strongly recommending though is that every recognised school has one framework where um, a smart and, uh, and well-time-managed student can go from soup to nuts, i.e. first week, first year, first term, of uh, their study to registration in seven years, including two years of PPE, and graduate from the university with access to the UK Register of Architects. This was the key recommendation of the RIBA Education Review, and uh, we're completely sticking to our guns on that. Um, so, really yeah. quickly, so, but if I do now a three-year undergraduate degree, one yep. year out, two-year masters, so is that is that changing anything? No, ah, no. Right. It's just that statistically, the average period of time it takes to get to registration is nine point eight years. Right. So we're we're trying to get a. There, there are two things. Here. One is to ease access to the register, um, and secondly, and possibly more importantly still, it's to have every student understand that they will be working in some kind of professional context doesn't necessarily mean professional practice, but they will need to act and work as a professional being. Um, so the idea that uh, you hive off the professional world in the Masonic Lodge of Part 3 that only is access after five years full-time education doesn't seem to compute against that ambition. So we're suggesting, and this is not something you're unfamiliar with, um, being uh, the implementer of a continuously assessed part three course. It's the idea of embedding professional skills tuition throughout the five years of, of architecture so that it doesn't come as a shock to you that there are issues with time, um, money, resources, um, business practice, etc., uh, that, that seem alien when yeah. you graduate. Yeah. You need to understand the context in which you will be working. Right. So it's, in one way it's a modest ambition, in the other way it's a massive ambition. Yeah, well, we'll move on to that in a minute, but in terms of the statistics you gave about 9.8 yeah. years yep. on average, that's not taking into account people who drop out and your average no, it goes up. It's, it's, it's people who work for three years instead yep. of the one yep. which they could do. Yep. What's the problem with that? Um, there's no problem with it. Um, so what's, the, what's, the, what's the driver to, to I think insist, the, I, I, you know, I think to the recommend driver seven. is that um, there, are, there are people who spend a lifetime in architecture who are not fully qualified and find that problematic. 
this isn't to suggest that there's any stigma, real or inferred, in the idea that you have a first degree in architecture. It's a ridiculous idea that if somebody had a first degree in English, they would necessarily have to get a master and PhD you know, to, be, to be somehow regarded as um, more than a lesser being. Um, but the fact is that the structure of registration in this country is dependent on three parts. And what we want to do is to give um, greater um, racing opportunity for, for a, um, a keen student coming in to achieve registration and not fall off the last fence, which they, people often do. They graduate from part two, they go into practice, they get busy, three years, five years, ten years pass. Um, they acquire um, families, mortgages, yeah. car loans, and other things get in the way of the registration. And we just want to give people more opportunity. We also think that there are issues about inclusivity and diversity in the profession which are better addressed by a structure which is more likely to lead people to registration. Not to soften it, not to make it less rigorous mm. or professionally demanding, but to make it um, part of the curriculum, not an aside to the curriculum. Sonan Prasad memorably said that um, the inference to students of architecture is that if part three cannot be accessed until after five years, it lacks importance. That's Sunan's viewpoint. If you're a keen student, the, the example you give, yeah. that you want to encourage them to do the seven years, if you're that keen, you probably will, because sure. there is a large number of people who do do that. Yes. If you then go out into practice and think, I'm quite happy earning a living here, the inference seems to be that because you're doing that, you can't, or you won't, or you don't have time to do the part three. That also may be true, but in some senses, you could just quite happily be an architectural assistant. Don't have any difficulties. There are no difficulties with that at all. But I think we, I think, given the debt that students accumulate um, over five years of full-time study plus. Um, there is a moral imperative to improve their chance of registration and if you take the broad statistic of 14,500 part 1 and part 2 students and around 1,000 to 1,400 um, part 3 mm -hmm. candidates then you are looking at around 1.4k playing 14k. That doesn't seem a very good conversion rate and I don't think that's anything that we should be Happy about. I think architectural education is one of the most important educational um, styles, uh, methodologies, processes. Tremendous yes. liberal arts first degree. Liberal arts of understanding the world, of yep. seeing problems where maybe other people don't. It's a, it's a view, you see the world differently when you finish this work, when you start. And I think out of that, you know, you can, you can qualify. Those people who don't go on to do part three, aren't wandering around selling the big issue, are they? They are kind no, 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 of no, no. interior no, designers and they're yeah. having a nice life in some respects. So that's quite good. It, it's not dissimilar to the USA. I think the, I, I think the point we're trying to make is that uh, we believe there should be alternative routes to registration. And we're not saying that an integrated route is the be all and end all. And in fact, we've made it absolutely clear to the schools that if they want to maintain their existing provision, they can do that but that every recognised school should have one pathway, which can, which is the integrated pathway, which means they graduate from university with access to the register. Fine. Okay, okay. I could carry on arguing with you, but I'll stop Yeah, now. it's all right. Uh, uh, it, it's, a, it, it's a kind of absolute... Um, uh, 
involuntary reaction. <laughs> it's, a, it's a spasm of mine, yes. Um, so look, uh, I'll just move on since we, we, we did mention it and it comes into this whole thing. Sure. Um, about what the changes are in some respects, because yep. it's kind of quite hard to get a handle. Well, I, I find it quite hard, even now. PEDRs, yes. uh, Professional Experience and Development Records, they are changing. Basically, the existing system we've got is a digitised version of the paper logbook ah. that I filled in 40 years ah. ago. Um, that's nothing to be proud of, and it breaks all the time. But more to the point, we're trying to achieve something which is aspirational and ambitious, and we will be combining the CPD recording with the recording of PPE. And there already is a little. Yeah, but at the moment they're two separate platforms. So this will be a combined platform. Um, it's in advanced project planning stages. Um, it's, it will be a, um, a significantly slicker entity. And the medium to long-term aspiration is that it provides a complete digital log of the professional development of an architect. So it becomes, if you like, um, a digital CV, untamperable, unfictionalizable and something which actually allows one, either oneself, or with a potential employer, or with a group of uh, your peers, to review your professional career. There are aspects of the recording which we see potentially as um, what I've referred to somewhat as the kind of Facebook of professional development, which is that in addition to recording the quantitative stuff, years before the mask, hours before the mask, against RIDA workstations, which provides a ready reckoning of experience. Um, it will also provide the facility to be able to spontaneously record insights into professional development. You go past a particularly deep excavation with minimal health and safety measures. Pathetic example, I know, but you take a photograph of it and you bang it in there. So it becomes, in the same way that the uh, Royal Pharmaceutical Society, which has undergone considerable um, revisions to the way it operates post Harold um, they have a very quite a broad attitude to the way in which you can record and what is eligible as CPD. Um, I think that the way in which we acquire insights as learning individuals is not linear. Yes, there's a certain amount you get out of being in a lecture context, there's a certain amount you get out of reading a book, but there's an awful lot of stuff that you acquire through osmosis and suddenly happening over something. And I would like there to be a variety and a diversity to the professional log, which it doesn't currently have, it's dull, and I think it needs to be seen as something which somebody could take on as a challenge, in the same way that a student takes the challenge of curating a folio to make it attractive to both themselves and to future um, employers. I, I want to see that as having a, an aspiration and something where you celebrate the professional elements of architecture. I, I'm, I'm for you in principle because it's kind of one of the things that I'm trying to do in the masters program down in, down in Kingston. But at the same time, it's a different rationale for from me doing it as part of an educational process, yep. and, and this is part of a kind of professional development, slightly more ethereal. But it, except for the fact that you're then trying to quantify, I'm assuming. It has to be quantified and it has to be qualified. Yeah. Um, and the quantification issue is pretty simple. It's not going to probably be hugely different to what we've got at the moment. The numbers have got to basically add up yeah. if, if, if somebody is considering signing off. Yeah. They've got to add up. Yeah. Um, 
and they provide um, an instant tally of whether somebody is making it on the numbers area. But if what we're really doing is evaluating judgment and capability and flexibility and um, ability to interact with other people in the design team, with clients, with peer group and so on, I think there has to to be more breadth to it. Do you see this as a process of yeah, development yeah. rather than it's going to be a finished final product? That's yeah, I think we could be cautiously looking at something that's going to be ready for critique in spring, summer next year. 2019? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, speaking of 2019, new RIBA validation procedures, criteria, credit yes, attributes, yes. all this kind of stuff. Subject to agreement with the statutory board. Indeed. Introduced says on the RIA website from the 1st of September 2019 with an approved draft available for reference from September 2018 um, which covers undergraduate and postgraduate up to part yep. three so it's all pending I understand yep. all that do you have any heads up as to where this no, is? No I can tell you exactly where it is we have a completely satisfactory set of criteria and attributes which are acceptable to both SCOSA and the RIBA but unfortunately with which the statutory body has not agreed and how do they change from what they are at the moment? Well, well, first of all, what's wrong with the ones that they are at the moment? Um, what's, the what's wrong with them? The 11 points of the European Directive have proved remarkably durable over four decades. Um, we think the elaboration of the three bullets under each one is unnecessary uh, and actually limits academic diversity and well, flexibility. Well, we were talking about at the beginning. Uh, we think the attributes have got legs in the sense that they talk about the kind of person as opposed to a sort of slightly more quantifiable approach. So we think they're quite good. We believe that the part three professional criteria are necessarily lengthy. They need to be rigorous, but they need to also talk about modern professional practice. They need to talk about global practice, irrespective of whether we're admitting people to the UK register. The majority of those entrants to the UK register can legitimately expect to work outside the UK at some stage. That's just a fact. It's just a fact. So does that mean that you might downplay your rigorous knowledge of JCT contracts and have a conceptual understanding of contracts? Uh, I I think the understanding of what the morality and ethos of a contract is is probably more useful than getting an encyclopedic knowledge of a document which is going to be superseded in a number of years. I came up on JCT 63 and it was as if the earth had split asunder when JCT 80 came out. And you know the reality is that you know subsequent to all that we have so many different means of procurement. I think anchoring a part three candidate's knowledge to the specificities of clauses, as I say, in something which is likely to be superseded, is not very intelligent. Right, okay, I'll go for that. Um, the website, again, yeah. mentioned something called, inverted commas, the compact. Yeah. What yeah, is it this exactly? Is the, the, um, it's actually quite hard to find on the website any explanation yeah, other than no, the, I understand other that. Um, the intention of it is that it addresses something which has bothered me for a number of years and which has bothered the profession for even longer, which is the issue of graduate employability. Now, Bodge and Bash will have a different idea of graduate employability, perhaps from Foster and Partners, I think it's fair to say. We need to make sure that we get this right. It is generally I'll be controversial here. The idea of graduate employability is generally expressed itself as, you know, this person is not fear and straight out of the box, and they don't know one end of the planet from another. 
I don't think it's as simple as that. Highly gifted graduates leave extremely profile, high-profile schools, um, and we've had this reported firsthand by very high-profile practices, and then freezing in practice. Because the transition from the mothership of the school to the world of professional practice is terrifying. And it's terrifying even for those who are incredibly able, even for those who've been involved in it, part-time work, two years plus or whatever. Um, it's a very difficult transition. So the compact is a series of two-way contractual agreements which set out the graduate expectation of their first six months, 12 months, 24 months in practice, and the employers. And it is a series of negotiations. Get everything out on the table. I've joined your practice because I believe it's going to give me this, this and this. Perhaps the partner then saying, you're more likely to land on the surface of Mars than achieve this expectation. But what we might be able to offer you is this, this and this. So it's a, it's a way of making the graduate feel at home. It's a way about making the employer understand that the silent person in the corner of the office gathering dust actually has an aspiration and an ambition and a utility which needs to be tapped. Because very often you have a hugely gifted graduates going into practices where 10% of their capabilities have been mined. Equally, because the graduate doesn't necessarily understand the business model or um, a kind of functionality within the practice, they're not achieving their best. So the compact is a way of being able to establish real dialogue between employer and employee and this in that transitional period. At the transitional period in two and three? Between going into practice, yes, probably traditionally for that 24 months of right. PPE. Okay, okay. But it could, it could equally be post-part three. No, I understand. Um, Obviously, I was only thinking this post-part three yeah. is quite um, an intrusive, you know, it's almost like saying all offices should work harmoniously and here's a structure we're going to give you to yeah. explain how you can well, do it. I, I, and, and, I, and an employer might say, you know, thank you very much, but you know, I'll run my own practice the way I'd like to. No, absolutely. And, and it, it's not telling anybody how to run their practice. It's simply saying, ultimately, it's a business run by and supported by human beings. Um, we're all fickle and fragile and difficult. Yeah. We all have ambitions or we don't have so many ambitions. Um, can we get these out on the table, discuss them and see how we can mediate so to achieve the best possible Yeah, possible so it's more result. like a structure for mentoring because yes. that's one of the things yeah, I found is that mentoring, mentoring people don't really know what it means. No, no, no. And it, it will form an extension of the eligibility criteria for RIBA chartered practices. So if you're a chartered practice, you have to sign up to the use of this. And as I say, we will trial it. If people tell us bits of it are rubbish, then we'll amend it. You know, we're not precious about these things. But okay. I don't really want to open up an entire hornet's nest, but I have to mention the apprenticeship yep. scheme. Not uh, a hornet's nest. Uh, okay, but, but do you want to just tell us what yeah, it is, well, how it we, works, we, what, been, how it is working? We've been busy with it, uh, with the Trailblazer Group, which is led by Fosters, yeah. from pretty much day one. Uh, what we knew about apprenticeships 18 months ago, you could write on the head of a pin. Uh, now we can write it on the head of a couple of pins. We know an awful lot more. It's an evolving structure. I think that one has to see it in positive terms in that it brings the practice and the school close together. It provides in the same way that part-time education can do. Mm. I think the endpoint assessments are 
not stupid at either um, level six or level seven, because I think they provide the practice and opportunity to define the kind of criteria which, for them, is a proper assessment of graduate employability at those levels. And most importantly, of course, it frees the apprentice from the spectrum of debt. Um, it will also provide, I think, a convenient co co conversion procedure for somebody who's done a conventional first degree and then wants to get an integrated part two and part three at level seven, yeah. which is also good value. Debt seems to be the driver for a lot of this, isn't it? No, I don't think it's just that. I, th I think the debt is an important thing. It's the one that's mentioned every time you read about these yeah, but, changes. Yeah, but, but I think that's inevitable because it's, um, you know, it's a big selling point. And um, I think we are rapidly becoming you know, the most expensive country to study architecture, certainly in the EU. And when you've still got Denmark offering free education to any EU citizen, um, we're clearly working at an, a disadvantage. So, I think, I think, I think cost of education is a driver. I think accumulated debt is a driver. I think the professional context is a driver. Um, I think employability is a driver. Um, and I think an improved dialogue between schools and practice is a driver. So, five drivers seems pretty good to me. Any one of those related to educational standards? Yeah, the educational standards are the same as they are for any other course. That that what is commonly misunderstood is that that the majority of modules um, in any apprenticeship scheme, and I'm talking ninety percent, are those which are previously validated by the RNIB and prescribed by the ARB. The assessment procedure is identical to a part-time and a full-time student. So. The academic rigour, the requirement to pass modules and progress through the levels of the apprenticeship as opposed to the university course are the same. This is, it, it, it's not um, qualification right. I mean, a question I don't know the answer to, unsurprisingly, uh, which is the, the apprenticeship thing, which uh, is a four-year module really, isn't it? So from undergraduates of four, four years and a, and a master's and far three combined as a four-year... Three and a half. Three and a half, yeah. Um, I don't understand how the tie to a practice works, or can you flit around, move? Yep, you absolutely can. Yep. I, okay. I mean, the expectation is that um, for the duration of one award, the apprentice is likely to be in the same practice. Um, but one of the advantages of the notion of these trailblazers mm -hmm. is that if for any reason there's a massive downturn yeah. um, in a practice, it needs to be hoped that there'll be self-help mechanisms which would enable an apprentice to be able to jump horses in midstream, as it were. The expectation is probably for the duration Jumping of... trailblazer employment to other trailblazer employment. Conceivably. I mean, there's nothing being formalised about right. that, but I mean, it's certainly been one of the conversations that we've had with the groups of practices. Yeah. But were you to leave a practice because you didn't like it and move to a practice of small practitioner who's not in the trailblazer scheme, you kind of... But, but the thing is, there are mechanisms for non-levy paying practices to be part True. of the True. scheme. And uh, certainly speaking very much my RIBA hat on, mm -hmm. I think the, the profession, firstly, I think needs to accept more obligations in terms of the mutuality of knowledge, skills and ability between the, that can be developed in the school and those which are developed in practice mm -hmm. and to take more responsibility for that. And in that sense, I am critical of models of practice not providing sufficient challenge for graduates. 
um, and sufficient assistance for them. Uh, but that's a whole other story. Certainly we urge more practices to, I'll use, very, I'll use the word educate with a very small way, to make themselves aware of how the, the scheme works and to embrace it because I think if we're going to get powerfully capable graduates entering the profession, keeping UK-based practice at the forefront of client commissions, I think we have to accept that everybody's got an obligation to play the apprentice, the school, the practice, and I think it needs to be part of a nationally inclusive scheme rather than just, say, the AJ Hot 100 taking on responsibility and the usual suspects in the schools playing ball. I will have to thank you, Dean, because that was a very honest and thorough series of answers, which uh, we very rarely hear these days. So that's hopefully some answers uh, given to questions which uh, I know are out there in the real world on some of these issues. Information is on the RIBA website yes. and details ought to be provided soon on some of these things which are still yep. a little bit floating. Notwithstanding some uncertainty regarding Brexit, indeed the website, the RIBA website says we hope that the majority of schools of architecture will have begun the formal implementation by September 2018. Um, that's not happened across the board yet, has it? No, it hasn't. Um, I mean, we've had an encouraging number of uh, conversations, mostly informal, about um, uh, a range of changes. And I think the general climate in schools is understanding that reform is necessary, um, that they have to stay in business by offering a diverse range of pathways to qualification um, or for that matter, you know, first degrees only. Yeah. Um, nobody's um, blinking about any of this. But uh, their recommendation, they, they, they can choose to not do it. Yep, yeah. absolutely. They, they, they have to opt into one pathway, but it doesn't, it's not, uh, it, it's without prejudice to existing pathways often. And if all this seems to be taking an incredibly long time, one has to understand that there are 50 schools one negotiates with, there's a statutory body one has to negotiate with, there are the internal politics of all the institutions, the universe of the membership body, the statutory body, and this inevitably requires a great deal of patience and persistence. Makes Brexit look like a walk in the park. <laughs> so, okay, ladies and gentlemen listening, hopefully that was of use to students embarking on various levels of study, but also for employers to understand the changes when students come knocking. My name is Austin Williams, that was David Gloucester. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Professional Practice Podcast.